Stay hungry, stay foolish. Intelligent algorithms are already well on their way to making white-collar jobs obsolete. Travel agents, data analysts, and paralegals are currently in the firing line. In the near future, doctors, taxi drivers, and ironically, even computer programmers are poised to be replaced by robots. Without a radical reassessment of our economic and political structures, we risk the very implosion of the capitalist economy itself. We welcome author of New York Times bestseller, The Rise of the Robots and the Lights in the Tunnel, and his forthcoming book, Architects of the Artificial Intelligence Revolution, futurist and author, Martin Ford. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You start off the book explaining a rote task and how a worker is going through that. Right. I mean, the basic thesis of the book is that really any kind of task that is routine and predictable, um, the kind of work where you, you, you know, come to work and do the same kind of thing again and again in a way that what you're doing right now could be predicted if you had lots of data showing everything you've done in the past. And, and the first example I give in the book of that is a robot, you know, which is moving boxes. Now, that actually is a task that it has historically been very difficult to automate because it relies on things like human, you know, dexterity and, and visual perception, the, the you know, the, the ability of human beings to see something and then interpret that visual image and then act on it. Uh, it's really hard to build a robot that, that does that, or at least it has been. But that, that um, barrier is now falling, and ultimately that is a routine job. You know, if you're moving boxes all day, clearly you're doing something that's routine. So that's one example of the kind of work that's definitely going to be threatened in the future. But there are many others across the board. But the the common theme is that it's something that is predictable, something that, that you tend to do again and again, not necessarily in a rote, repetitive way, but in a generally you know, predictable way. You talk about that manufacturing jobs count for, at the time of the book, 2015, counted for 10% of overall jobs in the USA. While it's 10% of the jobs, that's not the case abroad because China, for example, lost 15% of manufacturing workplace jobs, jobs that have been offshored are two being replaced by automation. In terms of manufacturing specifically, this is going to be a much bigger deal in the developing world and because that, of course, is where most of the factories are located, at least most of the labor-intensive factories that really you know, employ a lot of people are in the developing world in China and you know, other countries. Uh, but even in even in the U.S. and in and in Europe and advanced countries, you know, manufacturing may not be so important. But these same phenomenons are going to impact many other areas: warehouses, um, service sectors, areas like fast food, for example. So robotics is is going to be fairly broad based. So we are looking at a big disruption, and that's not even yet getting into uh, what I'm sure we'll talk about later, which is the impact on white collar jobs and so forth. So we're looking at a very broad based disruption. This is one of the key things you bring to mind. And, you know, people will have heard the intro to this and go, yeah, I've heard that before. That is a key factor because you talk about this and you call the chapter, is this time different? It'd be great to share the story of this going back to 1964 and the Triple Revolution Report. Right. In fact, you know, I can be 
begin much earlier than that because it, the fear goes all the way back to at least the Luddite revolts in England, right, which were about 200 years ago. Workers then were afraid of, of machines that were taking their jobs. And that's where we get the term Luddite from, which has always been kind of used in a disparaging way. But now as we look forward, they, they may have in the long term been right you know, about their concerns. It is something that, that has come up again and again in terms of people really being concerned about the impact of automation. The Triple Revolution Report is something that most people today have not heard of, but at the time it was very prominent. It was it was a report written by a really smart group of people. It included actually two Nobel laureates on the uh, team that wrote this report. And it basically, it, it talked about other things besides automation, but automation was its main point or what it called cybernation. And basically it said that the US was gonna be totally upended, you know, that millions of people were going to lose their jobs because of industrial automation and the whole economy was going to be upended. There would be chaos. And the report argued that the government needed to take action right away or, or you know, we were going to have a big problem. And this report was given to then President Lyndon Johnson in, in March of 1964, which is, of course, over 50 years ago. So, um, you know, it hasn't really happened. But even though people 50 years ago expected it to happen, it hasn't happened so far. And that's, that's why if you talk to many economists in particular, they'll be quite skeptical of this because they'll say, look, you know, this, this alarm has been raised many times. It, it never happens that way. The economy always adjusts. New positions are created. Uh, it works out. And so there's an expectation that it will work out in the future. And, that, you know, I think that that is true right up until the point where it's not true anymore, right? Um, ultimately, uh, you know, this is not a physical process. It's not a physical law. It's not like 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 the laws of gravity, you know, that the, the govern the way the, the planets orbit the sun or something. So you can be absolutely sure it's going to keep going basically forever. Um, this is, you know, an economic and, and social um, phenomenon, and it's about the, the limits of technology. So I think there does come a point when this time is really different. And uh, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that technology is finally getting there, you know, that, that maybe we're really reaching that point. Yeah. And I thought this was a really key point because I find, you know, your work is brave. Callum Chase, if we'd have on the show before as well, there's some people around the world who are calling out the problems. So raising a flag to the future and kind of going, look, this time it is different and we need to stand up and we need to start making making changes we need to start readjusting how everything works because you talk about this around the, the triple revolution report many economists were afraid to write about it because they feared ridicule or they feared that they they would be called luddites themselves yeah i mean this definitely was um before i started writing about it, it was, was kind of a stigmatized topic i mean to 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 take this issue on would have been to yeah risk being ridiculed by your colleagues as being called a luddite. Um, I do think that's changing, and many economists are now taking this seriously because, I mean, they see what's happening in AI, and 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 there are there is economic data out there that's problematic. We obviously don't have high unemployment right now, but we do certainly in the United States have stagnant wages. Right? That I mean, people have not gotten a raise for decades, and I argue you know very strongly that that is to a significant extent due to the advance of technology. Um, so there are things going on that, that provide evidence that, that there is a disruption uh, 
stagnant wages is one of the deadly trends that you recognize. It'd be great to share these with our audience because you talk about things were different then. It's not just one trend on its own. It's the recipe of all these trends thrown into a mixing bowl that's actually leading to this time really being different. Right, right. Maybe the most important graph that I have in my book shows a comparison with, you know, between productivity and and incomes or compensation in the United States. And it used to be that as productivity increased, and by productivity increasing, I mean, basically that things get more efficient, you know, the, the, the tools used by workers are getting better and better, better machines, they can produce more. So workers can produce more in the same amount of time, productivity goes up. It used to be that as productivity went up, wages also went up. They, they, they moved together almost perfectly. So when you look at this graph I have in the book, there are like two lines that, that just move together, almost the same line. Um, and that's the way it was in the United States right up until the mid-1970s. And that is really the way it is supposed to be, ideally. you know, If you talk to economists, they'll say, hey, this is this is why advancing productivity is a good thing. This is what happens. You know, it makes everyone better off. But around the mid-1970s in the United States and also somewhat later in the United Kingdom, what happened is that productivity continued going up and up and up, but wages just just flattened out. And so now there's this big gap where, where the two lines, the productivity line and the wage line, used to move together. Now the wage line is flat and productivity keeps going up. So it's like a big a big wedge there opening between these two lines. And that just keeps getting a bigger and bigger gap between these two lines. So what it, what that really says is that average workers, you know, the typical people that work on an hourly basis, non-supervisory type average employees, they really are not benefiting from the progress of technology in terms of their wages at all. They're not getting any of it. I mean, in the United States, there are some groups of workers that actually make less now after adjusting for inflation than they did in the 1970s. They're actually literally worse off than they were in the 1970s. Um, and, and obviously, many of those people are unhappy about that with good reason. And, and I can pretty much guarantee you that a lot of those people in the United States voted for John, Donald Trump. So we're already seeing something of a political disruption, I think, as a result of, of these very disturbing trends. So, uh, and, and, you know, to my mind, I don't see anything that turns that around, you know, because technology is just getting better and better, maybe at an accelerating rate. You know, I think this is a continuing problem that we really need to focus on. Yeah, and it's something I noticed, right? So I remember the the financial crisis, so 2007, 2008, 2009, those years that many people were let go from their roles, but they weren't then replaced. So the workload got heavier for the people who rem- who kept their jobs. And then a lot of tasks were were replaced by machines because algorithms started getting stronger and faster and et cetera, et cetera. There was, became SaaS models. The cloud started coming to prominence and people started replacing roles with software. And you, you say this, which is really, really key piece. So it's not only that wages are stagnated, there's a diminishing job creation in the world all over. Yeah, I, at least in the United States, there's definitely been you know less. If you look over the last half decade, I've got a graph there showing how many new jobs created in each decade, and it's going down like a you know it's a bar graph. It looks like descending a staircase. Um, so that has been happening, and and the interesting thing is that that doesn't happen consistently. What consistently, you know, what happens is a lot of jobs disappear in recessions, and as you say, that's the point at which 
companies really begin to heavily utilize technology during a recession when they're under a lot of stress for for you know because they're you know it's a difficult economic time and they often become more efficient so they lay off workers they become more efficient and then they don't have to rehire those workers um, and what we've seen in in the United States and other areas is that eventually the jobs do come back after a recession but they're not the same jobs they're less desirable jobs you know a lot of the good jobs disappear and then we get fast food jobs at McDonald's, for example, as, as a replacement for those jobs, which isn't so good because that's one of the things that's really pushing down the wages. So that's something to keep in mind that, you know, people in the U.S., you know, right now would say, hey, things are going well. You know, we, we've been in this recovery now for a really long time since the last, you know, devastating recession back in 2008. It's been going on and on and on with things, you know, the job market, you know, is getting better and better, but that's not going to happen forever. I mean, eventually there will be another recession and then we're back into this, this same cycle again and, and jobs are going to be lost and those jobs then will, will be permanently displaced by technology and they may not come back to the same extent during the recovery. So this is an ongoing process and I think um, it is a long-term trend that's quite uh, concerning. Yeah, and, and then you add in the fact, and you call this out in the book, that people are brought in on a freelance basis. And, and people talk a lot at the moment about the gig economy. And sometimes I think, well, that's because you don't really have a choice. The gig economy is coming in because the world's moving to more freelance roles rather than permanent roles. And in a way, sometimes you'd be brought in to actually train an algorithm or train a machine to do that role eventually. And you talk about, for example, um, in fast food jobs, you mentioned just there Momentum Machines, which is a, a company that's replacing fast food workers. Right. Uh, Momentum Machines has is, is been around for a while, and they're just now getting to the point where they're really going to build a, a real product that they, you, I think they're going to open a restaurant in San Francisco. So you'll be able to go in and you know, buy a hamburger produced by a robot. So they, that, that technology is getting very close to being deployed. Um, so it's going to have an impact. Um, and they're not the only one. There's another, there are co- several other companies doing fast food automation, both for hamburgers and for pizza. And so, so this is coming, it's going to have a big disruption. Um, and that, you know, the, the wages in this area are already low. You know, so of course that's potentially going to make it even more competitive to get those jobs. And as you say, a lot of the things that are available now are these gig economy type things. Um, probably the best job you can find in that area is, is is driving for Uber, right? That's a job where people can make decent incomes. Um, but of course, we know that automated cars are coming, so that that's not going to be around there forever. Um, a lot of the other gig ato- economy jobs are really pretty terrible actually i mean it's things like amazon's mechanical turk which is a system where you you can sign up and do tasks and what it is really is you're you're doing things these little things that that the algorithm can't do yet because it's not smart enough the ai is not smart enough yet so what they do is they they basically plug a human being in there somewhere in this process to do some mundane thing again and again and again that that you know an ai algorithm can't do yet and a lot of them are just really miserable jobs that pay, you know, a dollar an hour or something. Um, so that's not really very exciting and promising as, you know, the future of work, if, if that's what it's going to look like. Um, and of course, over time, even those jobs gradually become automated as the technology gets better. So so it is true that, that it, you know, it's not just about outright unemployment. It's about the jobs that are being created are really not that great. Um, don't pay well and, and often can't be kind of 
dehuman or dehumanizing in the sense that they're so boring and and you know you, you know literally doing what a machine ought to be doing um, in many of these cases. So so I do think that that's a real problem. We might come back to both the automation, the self-driving cars with Uber, and the white-collar jobs like paralegals, for example, who are doing some of those dehumanizing jobs but we might continue on the some of the deadly trends that you recognize one of the other ones that often gets a bad rap is globalization it's often blamed on why people aren't buying american goods but you show this through your figures that that's not quite the case in america right i mean globalization is you know it, it has absolutely had an impact um but but the impact of technology is almost certainly greater um, on the workforce than globalization. For one thing, the direct impact of globalization is limited to what we call the tradable sector. In other words, people that are producing products that can be shipped across the world, right? Um, so manufacturing. So if you're working in the service sector, you know, making hamburgers to, to, for people to walk in or, or serving coffee or working in a retail store, the, the, the direct impact from Globalization is not that great because people in China can't do your, you know, they can't serve coffee, right? Um, they can't, they can't um, prepare food and serve it in your in your location. So, um, you know, the impact of of globalization is certainly real, but it is not as great as automation. And the other thing to keep in mind is that automation is also having a dramatic impact in those countries that supposedly have taken all the jobs, and particularly in China. So those, those you know, China is now. The biggest country or the biggest market in the world for industrial robots. I mean, their factories are automating at a very rapid rate, and that's also going to be transformative in China, and it's going to make it potentially difficult for them to do the thing they need to do, which is to rebalance their economy so it becomes more driven by domestic consumer demand rather than you know selling stuff to the rest of the world or, or relying on building lots of infrastructure, which is what they're doing now. So th this is all a challenge globally. Um, it kind of intertwines with globalization, but it's not, you know, it, it is something that, that is going to happen across the world. You, you mentioned there uh, the dehumanizing roles. And for example, you talk about the paralegals and uh, many college graduates coming out and they can't find roles because a lot of the starter roles are now done by software in a way. And that coupled with the fact that they're laden with huge debts from from going to college in the first place, especially in the USA, and then on top of that, you layer on the fact that there's this inequality of wealth that's getting the gap is getting further and further apart, and any gains through automation are actually going to shareholders and wealthy investors, etc., and CEO pay packets. So therefore, the one percent is getting even further away. Right. And, and, you know, as you say, the white collar thing is something that I should talk a bit about because I think many people, when they, obviously when you think of robots, you think of factories and you think of the people that work in factories or in warehouses or maybe at McDonald's. And, and all those people are going to certainly be impacted by physical robots. But there is also going to be a huge impact, maybe, maybe arguably even a, a greater impact on all kinds of knowledge work, you know, white collar tasks, people that sit in sit in a cubicle in front of a desk with a computer in front of them and they manipulate information in some way, um, in particular in some predictable way. Maybe they're producing the same report again and again or the same quantitative analysis. And a lot of these people, of course, 
are going to be highly educated. They will have university degrees. Some might even have professional or graduate degrees, people like lawyers and, and even some kinds of doctors. Um, there's a lot of technology coming along that's already impacting these areas. I mean, there are systems, for example, that can do basic journalism already. There are systems that can, can look at a stream of data, figure out is there an interesting story in that data, and then automatically generate a new story from that. And, and you know, there are media organizations that publish those automated stories online and you can read them and you won't realize it wasn't written by a human journalist. So there's going to be a huge impact on, on work done by skilled workers. Um, and that really is going to be transformative. That's one of the biggest challenges we're going to face because historically the only solution we've had to the impact of technology on the job market has been education, you know, send people back to school and uh, give them more education, make them go to college, right? Uh, and if it turns out that that is not a sufficient solution because even these more skilled jobs are disappearing, then that really implies we're going to have to think outside the box in terms of what we do about this, right? Because just sending back, sending people back for more training, more education is not going to be sufficient. Um, so that's a big challenge looming. And it's going to be a very broad-based disruption and it's going to impact a lot of people that, you might think are going to be safe and they're not going to be safe. Um, and as you say, what that leads to then is this inequality issue. And basically what's happening here is that machines are becoming more capable and they're displacing all kinds of work. Um, and what that really means is kind of the rise of capital because machines and technology and algorithms are all capital. Capital is becoming more capable and, and, and uh, displacing labor. And so if you look across the world in many countries, what you see is that the percentage of national income going to labor is actually declining and the percentage of national income going to capital is actually increasing. So what that means is that things are naturally going to become more unequal because ownership of capital is very highly concentrated. You know, We know who owns the capital. It's just a few people. Most people across the world don't really own much of anything except the value of their own labor. And as that labor becomes essentially less competitive versus capital, that's a problem across the whole world um, going forward in terms of things becoming more unequal, in terms of ownership becoming concentrated into the hands of a very few people, very few, very wealthy people. So that's something that we're going to see a lot more of going forward, and we're going to have to figure out a solution to that. Yeah, and, and maybe this is a, a good segue for, for uh, basic income because – the idea of, of an average basic income or universal basic income is driven by this. So if, for example, you have these platforms, these mega platforms like Facebook and Google, uh, coupled with some very wealthy billionaires across the world, the factories and the products are run by very few people, like we're seeing now with like Google versus Ford versus Chrysler versus GM versus WhatsApp and these kind of companies with very few people per profits. Where the heck are all the people going to get their money from? And then also, how are they going to feed back money into the capital markets to start feeding consumerism? Right. And that's the key the key insight. And that's the reason that, that I've generally been a proponent of a basic income, at least as a very important idea for the future. And, you know, as you say, if there are actually people, if there actually are fewer jobs, you know, we've got factories that are more automated um, white collar jobs are disappearing. Maybe there just aren't enough jobs to go around, 
or and in or maybe together with that the jobs that are available maybe the wages are low maybe there are a lot of people competing for those jobs maybe those jobs have been de-skilled so that machines make it so that what was once you know a job that required lots of education can now be done by almost anyone with the with the available technology and so there are more and more people competing for that job and the wages get driven down it's de-skilled so if either of those these things happen you know basically you've got people earning less money maybe no money at all or maybe very low levels of income obviously then they can't survive they're not thriving um you know the middle class is eroding people are going to be very unhappy people are going to be more likely to vote for you know demagogues and and politicians that are potentially dangerous um and as you say the other thing that happens then is that people have no money to spend right they can't drive the economy i mean in order to have a thriving market economy you've got to have people that can purchase the products and services that are being produced i mean they've got you've got lots and lots of people millions tens of millions hundreds of millions of people need to have the means to purchase what's being produced or the global capitalist system is ultimately going to be threatened, right? You've got to have consumers. So a basic income becomes a mechanism that becomes sort of a replacement for jobs in terms of the mechanism that gets income into the hands of the people that need to buy things. Uh, and, and, you know, that's one of the main reasons that I support the idea. Um, Having said that, it's not something that's easy. It's going to be a difficult challenge. I mean, I, I'm not a, you know, kind of a utopian, Pollyannish kind of guy. I mean, I don't think that it's going to be easy to have a basic income. It's going to be difficult. Um, Finland, for example, has been experimenting with a basic income, but I've just heard that they're kind of pulling back from it now. That that that, you know, they they haven't really achieved the results that they've hoped. Um, so there, there are a number of programs around the world where countries are experimenting with it. I, I, there have been a number of positive outcomes in the future in small-scale experiments, um, but they don't all turn out well. I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to figure out. The, the idea, the basic idea behind a basic income is you give everyone sort of a minimal, survivable basic income that's unconditional. And you do that in a way where you don't destroy the incentive for them to do additional work. So everyone gets this minimal income, but for most people, it's not going to be enough. You know, they'll still want more. So hopefully they'll go and find a job if they can find one, or maybe they'll start a business so they can generate additional income on top of that. But then you don't penalize those people for doing those extra things. You don't say, okay, well, you found a job, so we're going to take your basic income away. Or you've started a business and you're generating income, so you're not eligible for it anyway anymore. We don't do that. We say you get to keep the basic income and you get to keep the extra money that you make. So there's always this incentive for you to work, to do your best, to to try to earn more. And that's quite different from the traditional social safety net programs that we have now, where we do say, you know, once you find a job, then you don't get the benefits anymore, right? And that that in many areas can create what's called a poverty trap, where People look and say, hey, if I go get a job, I'm not going to be any better off. I might be worse off because I'm going to lose the benefits I'm getting now. And that creates a trap where people are just stuck there. They, they just keep getting benefits and they, they don't look for anything better. They don't try to do anything productive. And they, they, you know, that's what creates a kind of underclass where people are trapped into relying on the safety net 
So, uh, you know, a basic income is a very promising way to address that problem. Um, but it is, you know, it does have downsides. We worry about creating a disincentive to work and, and all the rest of it. So it's, it's an idea that I think is very important for the future. I think it's great that there are small scale programs being undertaken, but we need to learn a lot more in terms of how people actually react to this kind of program. And then hopefully, eventually, we'll, we'll learn what we need to know in order to scale it out on a, a much broader basis. It's interesting what you say about the incentives, because you talk about this in your TED talk that you may have a kid in school and he starts going, you know what, I'm not going to make my exams, I'm not going to get my results, so I may as well give up because I'll get the, the UBI anyway, or whatever we call it. Right, and and that would be disastrous, right? Because being educated is not just about finding a job. I mean, we, we put enormous emphasis on that now, for sure. The whole It's become very vocational, educate people so they can find a job, but being educated is also about being a good citizen, right? It's about making informed decisions, about being able to vote in an intelligent way. As 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 the future becomes more and more complex, and we've got to deal with with harder and harder problems, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, genetic engineering, um, all this stuff is coming in the future, and 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 we're going to have to have a political response to that. You know, we need people that are informed and educated that will be have to vote on these issues, right? So the last thing we can afford is to have a less educated population in the future. I mean, that's a total disaster. So we really do need to think carefully about education and how it fits into all of this. This is a thing that actually is one of the drivers for me doing this show because there's not enough information out there. There's not enough interviews with Martin Ford that gives Martin Ford the time to talk about this because mainstream TV doesn't cover it because it's not commercial. It's a, And it's all intertwined. Like, so... Advertisers don't want to advertise around uh, stuff like this that are meaningful topics, coupled with the fact that what people do watch, and including people in their 30s and 40s, are watching Kardashians or they're watching mind-numbing TV. They're spending their time on screens playing Nintendos, and they're dumbing down their attention. And because they're doing that, they're actually their attention spans are much shorter and then they can't learn deeply. And then, as you say, things like narrative science who are writing for big publications are now taking the role of what was a gig economy job as well. So it's all all intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. This is a great forum for it. I, the times that I do get to go on television, I if I'm lucky, I'll get 30 seconds to you know explain all this, which is very difficult, of course. So, so this is a really good uh, forum. And Martin, so I'd love to share this with our audience because you talked about this time it is different, and it is because we're seeing exponential growth. And I'd love if you'd share your your explanation of exponential growth and also Moore's law because this is the big driver at the moment, plus the huge capital expenditure and investment in platforms and AI and algorithms, etc. You know, Moore's law, I think most people have probably heard of it, but it's just basically this rule of thumb that says every two years, computers have roughly doubled in power. And that's been going on for decades. Um, in terms of, you know, computer hardware, the, the way we build it traditionally with, with integrated circuit ch chips, actually, it, it is coming kind of coming to an end game now. We're not going to be able to use that particular process to continue with Moore's law. But, it, you know, it, the reality is that it's much more broad based than just specifically the hardware getting faster. Um, it extends to you know, software and communications bandwidth and everything. Um, and there are new techniques that are going to be used to continue that acceleration. So I do expect it to continue. But it, you know, you, 
it's just kind of breathtaking when you really think about what Moore's Law has meant. If you measure from the late 1950s when we built the first integrated circuits, we've seen something like 30 doublings in the power of, of, of computers since that time. And that's just an amazing number of times to double something. If you could get into your car and, and start driving at like five miles an hour and then gradually double your speed to 10 to 20 to 40, um, if you did that a handful of times, you know, you'd, you'd need a racing car, right? Um, you'd already, you know, be traveling at a very high rate of speed. But if you could do that 30 times, you would be a spaceship, you know, out of science fiction. You'd be traveling millions and millions of miles per hour, you know, faster than anything we've ever built in reality. Um, and that's really where we are in, in terms of the acceleration of technology. We are at a point where this acceleration has been going on for decades. And so things are moving really fast. Um, and so I, I do think that as we look forward to the coming decades, you know, we're going to see things that, um, that are amazing. And uh, it is manifesting absolutely in artificial intelligence. And, and the thing is that, that two things that are really important have happened. One is that acceleration in computing power. Computers are a lot faster now than they were even in the 1990s. It's, it's really made a huge difference. And the other thing that's happened is that we now have enormous amounts of data. You know, there's so much data being collected just incomprehensible amounts of data relative to what we had before. And that data becomes sort of the input, the feedstock for these smart algorithms that are running on these incredibly fast computers. And that together with some conceptual breakthroughs in areas like deep learning, which you know is one area of artificial intelligence, all of that coming together is what has really created the situation where we've had these dramatic breakthroughs in, in artificial intelligence, in deep learning, you know, machine learning systems that can recognize visual images better than people, that can translate languages, you know, literally from Mandarin Chinese to English in real time. You know, what you saw with DeepMind in London being able to win at the ancient game of Go with its AlphaGo system. These breakthroughs all happen because of these things coming together at this moment in time. And it's just going to keep getting better and better and more and more powerful because this acceleration is continuing. So that's really why I think we are now at the point where you can make a strong argument that this time is different because, you know, you can look at this technology at what's happening and, and how it's going to, you know, scale across the whole economy. And, and I, I really do think we're at that point. We were talked earlier on about white collar jobs being under threat. And a lot of people feel, yeah, that, that's just jobs like, for example, stock traders, or that could be, you know, accountants or those type of input jobs where you input figures and you, you're looking for patterns, etc. We talked about paralegals earlier on where you're spotting across reams of data, but now because that data is digitized and you're not going through files looking for certain cases that match your argument, etc., that changes the game. But one of the key differences, and you point this out, is that we always think, oh, machines can't come near the human creativity and human curiosity. But you talk about that. That's changed now as well. Yes. I mean, definitely machines are beginning to exhibit qualities like curiosity and, 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 and creativity. And that's kind of at an early stage. And I think that, you, you know, when people ask me, what should I do in order to protect my career? I, I think that doing something that is highly creative is still a good strategy. I think it's going to be a while before machines really, you know, begin to compete with the most creative people, but it is starting to happen in some areas. So it would be a mistake to assume that it can never happen or that the only jobs that are going to be threatened are truly rote repetitive jobs. That just isn't true. I mean, uh, computers are getting 
better and better. They are moving into these areas. So within 10, 20 years, I don't know what the situation is going to be. But for now, you know, genuine creativity and, and also interaction with other people, building sophisticated human relationships, these are the kinds of things that people tend to be better at than computers. Um, and so they're, they're probably um, areas that are relatively safe, but that definitely could change. Um, 20 or 30 years from now, who knows? I mean, anything is possible. One thing that really dawned on me, and because you explained it so well, was, for example, globalization and the threat of, say, local jobs not being under threat because the you know it might be a foreign student who doesn't have the same command of the local language, but with real time translators now. So if they have where you know I don't know what it will be. Maybe it's through a phone, or maybe it's some type of connection to your throat, and you can speak, and it translates in real time. If there's expertise and cheaper labor abroad, we're going to start looking towards it as well. And you t you call this almost dim digital immigration. Right. And, and I mean, that's happening already. And, and But it is true that, you know, what we call globalization and what we call technology, these two things are intertwined, right? They work together. You couldn't have globalization without lots and lots of all the technology that we have, right? Um, starting with the, you know, the first technology that made it possible was the container, right? That, that allowed things to be shipped. But information technology, the internet is is really accelerating that, right? So, so what you see often is that the first thing that happens is that jobs become susceptible to offshoring, meaning that another person in another location can do that job utilizing technology. Um, and that may be just, communications technology, but increasingly, as you say, it's also going to be language translation technology. It's going to be things like virtual reality, where maybe you can interact in very sophisticated ways from remote locations. Um, it may be ultimately actually controlling physical robots so that someone in India, say, can control a robot that's actually located in, in a Western country and, and physically manipulate the environment. These are all possibilities that are, that are going to be made real. Um, and then over time, as technology gets better and better, those systems are going to shift toward full automation so that now you don't even have that worker in another country doing the controlling. Rather, it's just, you know, artificial intelligence that, that's doing it. So that's kind of the trend that we see. So it, it you know, it is very disruptive. I mean, um, these technologies are going to work together um, with the incentive to lower costs um, and, and it could impact a lot of jobs that, in many cases, people are not really expecting. We mentioned earlier on Uber. In Chapter 7 of the book, you talk about a possible future. So a world of 3D printing, a world of driverless cars, and the effect of those things, the effect that we don't yet see. For example, in Los Angeles alone, 10,000 people work in car washes. Right. So driverless cars are probably, you know, arguably going to be one of the biggest disruptions that we're going to see. I mean, not not just cars, of course, but also trucks, which, which in many cases might be automated even before cars, um, especially uh, over long distances. So if you're driving, uh, you know, freight between cities on a highway, uh, that's actually fairly easy to automate. And I, I actually know of one startup company here in um, San Francisco that's working on this very hard already, and their plan is to have these trucks fully automated with no one in the truck between cities. And then when the truck arrives at a city and things get more congested, then a remote driver will take over that truck and, and deliver it to its ultimate location. So, I mean, there's going to be enormous impact there. I mean, uh, in the United States, driving trucks is one of the few middle-class, blue-collar jobs that are left. 
you know, in, in many states, it's, it's actually the most common occupation. So that's a huge impact. Um, and then, of course, uh, Waymo is, is already testing fully driverless cars um, in Arizona. So, I mean, we're not too far away from the point where you may be able to call up an Uber and it will arrive and there'll be no one in it. Um, so, you know, that's going to have a huge disruption on taxi drivers, Uber drivers, all the rest. So, you know, there's a big impact on employment there. There's also potentially a huge impact on peripheral businesses, as, as I said, car washes. I mean, the reason people go and take their car to be washed is that they own that car, right? But if in the future you don't own a car, you just, you know, call up a, an Uber type service anytime you want to take a, a ride, then, you know, you're not going to be taking your car to be washed or fixed or anything else. All of that's going to be centralized and that's going to have a huge impact on all of those businesses. Um, and then of course, parking and everything will be completely transformed by self-driving cars as well. So, you know, it's, it's an, an enormous disruption over the long run. It's going to disrupt employment, parking, the, the physical structure of cities, roads, all the rest of it. So it's just really an, an almost incomprehensible disruption is coming, but it's going to be a great thing, of course, because self-driving cars are going to be much safer. Um, you know, the, you know, untold numbers of lives are likely to be saved um, because because traffic accidents will be reduced. So it's something we should look forward to, but it's a disruption we're going to have to prepare for in terms of the impact on employment, in terms of the ways it's going to transform our city. So again, it's another call for a basic income, I think. This is one that always dawned on me was you've Ray Kurzweil in your future book, people like Ray Kurzweil, people who are working on the cure for death. So they're working on cure for aging, etc. But if we're to live longer, it means almost we need a life assurance to in case we live longer, not in case we die. You know, a lot of people that here in Europe, especially turn to taxi driving to earn a few extra euros, because they might not have enough in their pension and they need to top it up. So they turn to stuff like driving, they may, may do freelance writing. But now all these things are being replaced. And, and you often hear about Uber, who has been controversial in nearly every market they've ever been in, because of their treatment of drivers and fighting regulation, etc. But what's really happening is the drivers are teaching the software how to run without them. Yes, I mean that that's really true across the board. I mean not just for Uber but almost any worker, you know, if you're you're doing a white collar job, there's very likely data being collected about what you're doing um and and eventually that data can be used to to automate that job. You're right. So it is workers training the technologies that in the future might well displace them. Um so that's just sort of the reality of it. And this is something that we, we have to figure out a, a solution to, you know, we have to find a way to adapt and, and it can be very scary, but you know, my, overall I'm an optimist because I think, you know, a future where we all have to work less is not a bad future as long as we have the things we need. Right. And you, you can think I was a fan of Star Trek, uh, you know, the TV series and the movies. Um, and if you think of the, Star Trek world, it's a world of relative abundance. I mean, people are not going to work nine to five because they need to earn money for food. I mean, you 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 could, you, you know, all of that stuff was freely available. People did things because they wanted to, because they were excited to. Um, and I think we can have that future. We just have to need, we need to find a way to navigate through this transition and build a, a future that really leverages all of this fantastic technology on behalf of everyone so that everyone is better off rather than having huge numbers of people left behind. That's, 
I kind of view that as the central challenge that we're going to face in the coming decades. That's fantastic, Martin. And before we finish up, it'd be great to hear a little preview of your next book where you talk to leading experts from all over the world working in AI. Right. So it's a book called Architects of the Artificial Intelligence Revolution. And it's literally what it is. These people are already architects. They're the ones actually building these technologies. Um, The very brightest, smartest, most accomplished artificial intelligence researchers, um, uh, some executives. Later this week, I'm talking to Ray Kurzweil. That's one person. I've spoken to Rodney Brooks, who is the founder of iRobot Corporation and and other startups. Um, People like uh, Demis Hasebis, who runs DeepMind. So the very smartest, most accomplished people. And the point of it is for me to talk to them and ask them many of the questions that you've asked me. You know, what do you really think about the future of work? How is artificial intelligence going to evolve? We've heard people like Elon Musk and and Stephen Hawking warn that AI could really threaten us. It's something that we should be really scared about. What do they think about that? So it really kind of delves into these issues and also the work that they're doing and how AI is going to evolve and whether we're truly going to have a a thinking machine in the future. So it's a lot of really fascinating questions. Uh, And I get an opportunity to ask the very smartest people that are really deep into actually building this stuff. So I think that that's going to be really quite interesting. Brilliant, Martin. And when does that come out? We are slated for November. So so hopefully hopefully you'll see it then. Where can people find out more about you, Martin? For example, booking you for keynotes, etc. My website is mfordfuture.com. And also my Twitter is the same, mfordfuture. So those are the best places to, to look for me. New York Times bestselling author of Rise of the Robots, The Lights in the Tunnel, and the forthcoming book, Architects of the Artificial Intelligence Revolution. Martin Ford, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me.